and uh, we, are start, we are continuing a series out of the life of Solomon that we call, uh, we're calling the God Pursuit. And today I want to talk about what we've been experiencing this morning, and that's extravagant worship, big word to get out of your mouth, extravagant worship and the presence of God, and they go together. Here's the picture of some extravagant worship on the part of Solomon. His father has just passed away, and he is now the king of Israel. And we're going to see extravagant worship, and we're going to see an extravagant response from God. Uh, Verse 3 of 1 Kings chapter 3. Here we go. Solomon showed his love for the Lord, his love for the Lord, by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt offerings on the high places. The high places were hilltops where they would offer sacrifices, and there was no temple in Jerusalem yet. In verse 4, the king went to Gibeon. That's the place uh, that uh, just takes me back just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, The king went to that place, to Gibeon, to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon, if this doesn't stop you in your tracks, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. A thousand. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask whatever you want, Solomon. So on the heels of Solomon's extravagant worship, here was an extravagant response from God, ask whatever you want. That's where we're going to go. We're going to break all of that apart today because there is a way of living the Christian life that is not just feeling guiltier than you used to feel, being busier than you used to feel, with all the pressure on you to do all the right things. We're going to talk about a radically different way of reshaping the center of your walk with God. And that's, that's the life of worship. That's what Paul calls the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus called abiding in me. If you abide in Christ, and my words abide in you. This is paying attention to Jesus at the very center. All day, every day, less focus on you and more focus just on him. So let's first of all watch Solomon's extravagant worship as an example of this. It starts, the baseline is verse 3. And I like how the New American Standard Version translates it simply, now Solomon loved the Lord. He just loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. And What an amazing thing. And he loved the Lord by his actions. He walked, because it goes on to say he walked in the ways of the Lord. But he, he also loved with his affections and he just was wholehearted for God at this point in his life. This will change later in his life, but he starts out right. He starts just loving the Lord and wanting to build his whole reign as a king, his whole lifestyle as a man uh, around loving around loving the Lord. There was um, a man who lived in France in the 1600s who learned how to do this in a profound way, to build his whole life around loving the Lord. His name was Nicholas Herman. And uh, when he was a young man, he enlisted in the army, the French army. And uh, it was during his time in the military that, that God began to reveal himself. He had, a, he had a, a marked spiritual awakening from spiritual deadness 
to, to becoming awakened to the Lord. And, and he became somebody who deeply loved Jesus. Unfortunately, when he was also in the military, he suffered an injury that left him the rest of his life in chronic pain. So he had to resign the military. For a while, he took another job. And then he quit that job, and he went, and, and he entered, he entered um, a monastery in the city of Paris. And there, in that monastery, for the rest of his life, he became known as Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was assigned to kitchen duty. It's said that, that he basically had an aversion to that kind of work. He, he, the menial tasks, the kitchen duty, and cooking's above my pay level anyway. Um, I, I wouldn't want to be probably assigned to be a cook the rest of my life. Nobody would like what I cooked. But, but he, he had this sort of natural aversion to it. But he decided to take the next 15 years of his life in the kitchen of a monastery to turn it into a sanctuary of love for God. In fact, he wrote that amazing book that's now a Christian classic, The Practice of the Presence of God. And in it he writes, I put these on the screen, he writes these words, I have given up all but my intercessory prayers to focus my attention on remaining in his holy presence. I keep my attention on God in a simple, loving way. This is my soul's secret experience of the actual, unceasing presence of God. All day in that kitchen, every day of his life, he practiced the unceasing presence of God. He said, all, all my focus was on remaining in his holy presence. He would, as a part of that, take his daily tasks and turn them into acts of worship. We're told that he would cook breakfast for the other monks in the monastery, and then after they left, he'd clean the kitchen. And then he'd lie on his face on the cobblestone floor, and he would adore God for the sheer privilege of making omelets for him. He didn't make omelets for other people. He turned the chores that he didn't even like, he turned them into acts of worship and honor God. And then he'd say, when I, wasn't, when I wasn't actually doing a task, cooking, my life was a constant con conversation with Jesus. My whole, my whole life was just paying attention to him. He corresponded a lot and had many conversations with Monsieur de Beaufort, who also wrote about Brother Lawrence's life. And, and, and Beaufort writes this, he, Brother Lawrence, said his prayers consisted totally and simply of God's presence. His soul was resting in God. I read that and I thought, a lot of our souls aren't resting in God right now. I just think even this year has a lot of uncertainties and complications ahead and we're all fatigued and worn out from this pandemic. And, but what a way to live anyway. Here he's stuck in a kitchen doing jobs he, doesn't, he might not have chosen to do. But his soul was resting in God. That's the secret place that gives you the center to cope with every other thing, no matter what may happen around you. His soul is resting in God, having lost its awareness of everything but love for him. He wasn't, when he wasn't in prayer, Beaufort writes, he felt practically the same way. In other words, he lived in the presence of God. He didn't feel that much different outside a prayer meeting as he did inside a prayer meeting because that's where he lived his whole life. 
Remaining near to God, he praised and blessed him with all his strength. Because of this, his life was full of continual joy. This is what Jesus calls abiding in him, abiding in Christ. This is what Paul calls the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that we walk in a relationship with God, personal, intimate, moment by moment. And our focus, if it's purely on him and his presence and conversing with him, this becomes a center in life that, that so roots us in the life of Jesus that nothing else upsets us. This is the way Brother Lawrence came to live. So the writer of 1 Kings said this was the starting place, place for Solomon too. He, lived, he, he, loved, he loved the Lord. And, and, and here's the follow through that, the next verse, verse 4. So the king went to Gibeon, that high place, to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And there Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. When you're focused just on him, when you love him, when you love Jesus supremely, and he is the preoccupation of of your life, and he is the strength of your life, the response is wholehearted worship. It's wholehearted worship. And talk about wholehearted. He sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. He offered a thousand. That is staggering by any proportion in the Bible. You can't imagine the expense and the manpower and the time. This was his overflowing, wholehearted worship. This was pure extravagance to God. Pure extravagance. The numbers here are staggering. A thousand, a thousand burnt offerings. But this was a picture of a man who loved the Lord and he did it wholeheartedly. And I think Solomon was actually taking a page out of his father's worship manual. Because we're told back in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that Solomon's father, King David, was bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, back into Jerusalem. It was a huge procession, a huge worship procession. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 6, wearing a linen ephod, David, Solomon's father, was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord's Lord. And they weren't doing it quietly. They were doing it with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, his wife, who was also the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. There's something about wholehearted worship. that I'm not talking about needless emotional excess or craziness. But I know I, I have sat in a worship service instead of focusing on Jesus, I've focused on somebody who, as far as I was concerned, just getting into worship a little too much. Michael, looking from the window, sees David dancing before the Lord with all his might, unreserved, wholehearted, all out. His son would 
take that page out of his dad's worship book and offer a thousand burnt offerings on an altar in Gibeon because he was wholehearted, all out. Isn't that a little excessive? Wouldn't 250 have been enough? I mean, 250 were about worn out trying to, tr trying to worship God. No, not 250, not 500, not 750, a thousand. He was taking a page out of his dad's worship book. He was worshiping the Lord with all his might. And sometimes, you know, we just get cynical. Sometimes Sometimes we get critical of people who just all out in their worship. But I don't know about you, but he died for me. He shed his blood for me. He purchased my life. And I love him. And he deserves all I have. When's the last time I worshiped him with all my might? He deserves it all. And this was not only wholehearted worship, but it had at its core gratefulness and thankfulness. This was thankful worship. It said the king went out to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, to offer these thousand burnt, sac burnt offerings. And, and, and this idea of offering sacrifices, now that we have Jesus, now that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins, you know, do we still offer sacrifice? I mean, you know, what, what can we do? Do we still? But, but I think of Psalm 50, verse 23. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me. When you thank the Lord, you're offering honors. You're offering sacrifices to the Lord that, that honor him. And to the blameless, then I show my salvation. There are actually, in the Old Testament law, in Leviticus and Mosaic law, there were five general kinds of sacrifices. There were, and offerings. There were peace offerings on the altar. And some of those were considered thank offerings. There were peace offerings. And then there were sin offerings to cover for sin. There were guilt offerings to cover for unknown sins. There were grain offerings where the provision of the harvest was poured out before the Lord in honor of his provision. And there were what are known as burnt offerings. And it's these burnt offerings that Solomon offered. What were they? Well, they were the most foundational kind of an offering. And they were different than the off other offerings because these were offerings that were consumed fully with fire. It wasn't part of the sacrifice animal in, uh, offered. It was the entire animal. And, and the entire sacrifice is consumed with fire, and the smoke would go up before the Lord as a fragrant incense, and it was a picture of absolute, complete surrender to God. We are consumed fully by the Lord. But even before Moses prescribed these five kinds of offerings, we find the burnt offering already in the first book of the Bible and the second book of the Bible. And it's in association with gratefulness. Gratefulness, not that God gave me a better day than I might have otherwise had, no. But gratefulness for the greatest thing. We're people of his presence. It was in Genesis and Exodus, the burnt offering was offered in gratefulness that the Lord has allowed people to come into a covenant relationship with him. A covenant relationship with him. And remember, when we took communion earlier, Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Covenants were ratified with blood, like, like may I die if I don't keep the terms of this covenant. And, and we didn't have to make a covenant with God, but he made it one way with us when he sent Jesus to die for us. That's why, that's why uh, John writes in 1 John 4, verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God. I love that verse. It doesn't start with me. 
That's why I'm not going to put the pressure on it to continue with me. I count on him having loved me before I loved him. He loved me. This is, not, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He became the sacrifice to pay for my sin and guilt. He shed his blood to wash me clean, and he shed his blood to bring me into a new covenant that doesn't depend on, on, on how impressive I am, but it is, depends totally on what he alone did for me because he loved me before I loved him. And these burnt offerings... The burnt offerings in Genesis and Exodus were, were a sign of gratefulness that we came into the old covenant. Now we're a part of the new covenant. And, and, and this extravagant worship of a thousand burnt offerings, it just screams to me gratefulness. It just screams to me what ought to be the theme of my heart and your heart as we follow Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 13, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a what? A sacrifice, not a blood sacrifice. He did that for us to take away our sin. But our sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly, openly profess his name. Thank God that's our sacrifice now. Our version of a thousand burnt offerings is worshiping God wholeheartedly and especially, especially being grateful that we get to be his people because of what Jesus did for us and we can live in his presence. It doesn't get fancier or more complicated than that. It's his presence and focusing on what Jesus has done for us. Gary Tyra, professor at Vanguard University and a friend of mine, uh, writes in his great book, Christ's Empowering Presence, he writes this, a good number of the classic works on Christian spirituality emphasize the important relationship between the practice of the presence of God and an ongoing engagement in worship, praise, and thanksgiving. You'll see this all through, people who have encountered God, people who have loved Jesus and then lived moment by moment in his presence where it wasn't trying harder that it was the center of their life. It was the strength of Jesus and constant attention. It was the letting his abiding in Christ and letting his word abide in us so that then we bear much fruit in his strength. This is it. So he said, I'm going to read that sentence, the last part of that sentence again. There's an important relationship between the practice of the presence of God and an ongoing engagement in worship, praise, and thanksgiving. And he, then he says, I want to underscore that the connection between giving thanks to God and experiencing his presence is not only correlative, like because we experience his presence, we give thanks, but it's causative. And I've found this in my life. That's why it struck me. I've found this. One of the keys for me walking in the conscious presence of God, which I don't do enough during a week. I get distracted. I get worried. And if I'm left to myself, I get a little grumpy about things or easily bothered. You know, it's so easy to get out of that fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's so easy to slip in a constant focus on whether I'm doing enough and I good enough. Instead, what gratefulness does for me, just constantly being grateful for little things all through the day. I kind of reverse engineering, engineer it because, because every good thing comes from our Heavenly Father, the Bible tells us. And so I look at the good things, the wonderful big good things and the little good things that happen in my life. And if I'm walking moment by moment in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, what helps me be aware of his goodness and his activity in my life is constantly being grateful 
for things big and small in my life throughout the day. And the more I just worship him throughout the day, the more I just say, thank you, Lord. I just thank you for your goodness. I'm just overwhelmed with your goodness. The more I sense the activity of God, the more faith grows in my life. That's why my friend Gary says, says thankfulness is actually causative to, to practicing the presence of God moment by moment. It's wholeheartedness towards him and gratefulness towards him. This is what we see in Solomon as he offered these grateful, centered, all-consuming burnt offerings to the Lord in a wholehearted way. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, he talks about this experience. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Or as one translation puts, you're filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I mean, is it actually possible to live this way? Peter said, you can't even see him, though we don't see him. But like Solomon, we love him. And, 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 and though we do not see him now, we believe in him and our faith is in him and we're grateful to him and we praise him. And we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So back to 1 Kings 3. In verse 4 again, the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. The sacrifices wholeheartedly of his gratefulness to God. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And then, to Solomon's extravagance, God meets him and ups him with his own extravagance. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. This was his genie in the bottle moment, if I may say it grassly. Except it's not, what are your three wishes? God comes to him astoundingly and says, just tell me what you want and it's yours. This is God's extravagance back. Now, we're going to be unpacking what this looks like next week as we look how Solomon began to walk in God's extravagance back to him. But, but I just want you to experience God's extravagant response with, with me for a closing moment. So verse 7, Solomon replies to him, Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. So you said I could ask anything. Here it is. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon got everything right there. That's a heart who loved God and wasn't looking out for self-interest, but who began to carry actually God's own heart. And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life, for wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in ministering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will, be, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And then you may want to circle, if you have notes, the next word. It's the first word of the next verse, verse 13. Moreover. This is God's extravagance. Above all we believe, above all we hope for or, or, or could believe for or think, this is God's extravagance. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for. I'll ask, you know, you might have asked me for wealth and honor, 
And I'm going to give it, even though you didn't ask me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you more over. I'm going to just overflow in your life so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. I want the worship team, if you'll come. This brings me to, to the promise of Jesus. Can't read those words without thinking about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11 to those who love him and follow him. First of all, he says, don't give up. Keep coming after me. Keep lifting your sacrifices to me. Keep seeking me. Keep coming after me. For he says, I say to you, ask and it will be given you. And the Greek is actually keep on seeking and you will, not, you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. Keep going after the Lord. Keep focusing on Jesus. Keep walking in the presence of God. Keep centering your life in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. For whoever asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be open. And then he said, now which of you dads? Which of you, or, or, or it include moms as well. So which of you parents? If your son asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? Nah. If you ask for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? No. I mean, he, we in our brokenness know better than that. And then he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give goods to your, whole, to your children, how much more? There's the extravagant. There's the how much. There's the moreover God. There's the how much more God. He said, you come after me. You live in my presence. Oh, you're the one. You love me. I want you to know I loved you before you loved me. And this is what you were created for, to walk in my presence, to live, not stressed out, but to rest in me and to be full of my spirit. Because said, how much more shall your heavenly Father... If you as earthly parents know how to give good gifts to your children, even in your brokenness, how much more will your heavenly Father also not give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? That's his moreover. The flooding of his Holy Spirit in your life. The bubbling up of his Spirit in your life. He washed you clean by his blood. He made you a part of a covenant relationship with him. And then he didn't just say, okay, I'm going to watch you kind of struggle through serving me from here on in. No, he said, come to your heavenly Father. Here's the moreover. Here's the, here's the way much more. Bad grammar. Here it is, the much more. Your heavenly Father so wants to flood you with his Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Will you stand with me?